Hello and welcome to the Caring for Fano daily podcast. I'm your host Varun Paradwaj and today is day 20 of the New Zealand lockdown. I swear if I was not doing this podcast I would not be keeping track of the days. The lack of global cooperation and rising threats to democracy around the world during this lockdown point to the need to take a deep dive into these matters. Today we take a deep dive into quantum field theory and how it explains our common future. We hear from Karen Barad as well as some philosophy philosophers on Derrida. We hear from Karen on the entanglement of time and from our philosophers on postmodern philosophy. And my task today is to address issues related to our common future. So, of course, we are being told now that our common future is to be traced to the fact that we have entered a new epoch sometime around 1950 with the global dispersal of radioactive materials from nuclear bomb tests. What kind of future does this portend? The doomsday clock of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists introduced in 1947 represents scientists' estimation of how close we are to global catastrophe. The closest it's ever been is two minutes to midnight, and that was in 1953 after the testing of the hydrogen bomb. On the 23rd of January 2020, which is this year, the scientists readjusted the doomsday clock. It is now at 100 seconds to midnight, which I believe is the closest it has been. I said, don't worry about a thing. It's tough not to worry about the doomsday clock, especially if you've got kids like me. I think for a moment, if I can put aside my concern and my my worries, I can appreciate and be grateful for the idea that time is not a linear thing that just moves according to Newton's laws of motion and that to change any aspect of my life it is not that I must stop the uh, flow of time in terms of Newton's time which is you know things hard objects in motion but rather I'm working at the quantum level and exploring the depths of what is going on. At first the setting of the clock was based purely on a sense of temporal distance to nuclear apocalypse but in 2007 the bulletin expanded its measure to include climate change in addition to the prospect of nuclear annihilation as the greatest threats to humankind. And when it did that, the clock jumped to three minutes to midnight. 
So time is synchronized to the apocalypse to come, a future of no future, and distracting our attention from the ongoingness of war. How does it influence my thinking around my day-to-day life, knowing that now is the time that is the closest humanity has been to what scientists call doomsday scenario. The last time we were this low, we were 20 seconds further away. My heart goes out to all of us affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. At the moment, more than 2 billion people around the world are in a state of lockdown. I'm not sure exactly how many people have died and how many are in hospital and how many have recovered around the world, but the number is growing exponentially and a lot of people are really worried. And at the same time, Karen Barad shares with us in the upcoming audio the atrocities that have fallen upon the indigenous population of the world over the last 40, 50 years, if not more. Hiroshima, August 6, 1945. Clock mechanisms melted by the heat of the blast. And there's another famous Hiroshima uh, clock that's in the Peace Memorial Museum called the Peace Watchtower. And this has a clock synchronized not to war, but to peace. It is reset back to zero every time there is a nuclear test of significance. Now, the third type of clock that I want to introduce you to today are atomic clocks. The total colonization of space-time synchronized to the heartbeat of an atom. And the first atomic clock became a reality in 1949. The latest atomic clock is so precise that it won't gain or lose even one second in approximately 15 billion years, the approximate time of the age of the universe. Well, actually, nothing less than the global economy requires such a clock. The metaphysics of progress presents itself as the greatest threat to the future biology of the planet. The reference to the three different clocks is made to illustrate how the impact of time unfolds on a day-to-day basis. The clock that is ticking somewhere in my house has an effect, a very real effect on my day-to-day routine. And the doomsday clock and the peace clock and the atomic clock are all examples of different ways of structuring time. For example, if I was to put myself on the atomic clock and start to keep track of the movement of atoms in my body over time, then you can imagine the very 
act of trying to do that would spur into motion a lot of atomic movements and hence it would defeat the purpose and so any clock that we do have and I'm sure during the lockdown the experience of time for you would have changed at least uh, slightly each of these clocks even the nonlinear ones uh, synchronized to political events are arguably uh, measuring devices attuned to what Walter Benjamin very poignantly called homogeneous empty time whether calibrated to the future to individual events or successive ticks of the clock the face of time is tuned to this moment where now is the thinnest slice and each successive moment replaces the one before it so this is the time of capitalism colonialism and militarism but homogeneous empty time is not the time of indigenous and fourth world peoples it is not the time of the Inuit or Aboriginal peoples Native Americans or Pacific Islanders it's after the end of the world don't you know that yet it's after the end of the world don't you know that yet what time is it it is the pain that comes from being forced back into the present what does it mean to be pulled back into the present moment where had I gone was I somewhere imagining a different future to the one that gets proclaimed in the news was I off thinking about all the things that have happened to me in my life we've all seen this play out every day which is somebody's on their phone you don't know where they are literally they could be anywhere in the world right now and they probably are in more than one place because as I found out when you're on the internet you're actually working in atomic time and so the point from all of this is what we started with which was the idea of trying to figure out just what is going on in the world right now and how to go about finding this how to go about studying the situation at hand and possibly to prevent things like this from happening again the world's first atomic bomb was detonated on July 16 1945 in New Mexico home to 19 American Indian pueblos two Apache tribes and some chapters of the Navajo Nation and the so-called Cold War wasn't cold at all nuclear war the exploding of some 2,000 nuclear bombs was being conducted the whole time against the fourth world and indigenous peoples and and it still happening so the notion that there is something called the future already assumes a particular conception of time that finds no traction in indigenous cosmologies and onto epistemologies once history as time is universalized and human beings are so to speak all put on the same clock 
It is inevitable that the big picture of human history, that in the big picture of human history, some people will be viewed as on time, ahead of time, or running late. The first task has been to kill the fallacies of the present, to annihilate the fantasies that all is well. The second task is to arrest the present, to stop it, to not allow it to continue to get away with itself for one more single moment. Whose future, whose time? The rest of my talk I'm going to talk and not read. I'm going to talk about different kinds of temporality, different notions of temporality that quantum physics gives us. And that is, what does quantum physics have to say about the nature of time? So quantum physics not only deconstructs the determinism of Newtonian physics, but it also blows away any progressive notion of time. What is the thing we are made of? And this, as much as being a rhetorical question right now, is an important one because if we are more than objects of mass moving according to Newton's laws, then how does that explain things like the internet? How does that explain our ability to telecommute, to go to Mars? to do all the things that we do every day. And so this deep dive into metaphysics and very soon we are going to be hearing from postmodern philosophers to bring this back home and help us to think more clearly about just what is going on and how as an individual or as a community we could possibly contribute to that. Now let's look at some science. So very quick presentation of some quantum physics. The classic two-slit experiment which tells us something about in the Newtonian world what is the nature of the ontology of the world. So if you want to know if anything is a wave or a particle then all you do is pass it through a two-slit apparatus. Now, in the 20th century, physicists realized that under certain kinds of experimental conditions, if you pass uh, particles or ultimately anything else uh, using the right conditions through a double-slit experiment, you can actually find it behaving like a wave. Well, you might say there's a conspiracy of all the electrons that are being sprayed at the barrier at once, and somehow they organize themselves into alternating patterns, which seems like quite the conspiracy theory, but okay. We can get rid of that by shooting one electron through at a time. So I shoot one electron through, I watch where it hits on the screen, and I keep doing it thousands of times for different electrons, and I get a diffraction pattern. Now, Einstein suggested that this is a kind of um, something deep we don't understand here because, of course, if I were to have some kind of witch slit detector, I illuminate the slits with a flashlight or something else, that what I'm going to do is I'm going to catch it being a particle going through one slit or the other, so it wouldn't make any sense that, you know, I don't know how to reconcile or what I'm really doing, find a, diff a diffraction pattern. And Niels Bohr said, not so fast. 
Because if you insist on doing a witch slit experiment, you're not going to get a diffraction pattern. What you're going to see is a scatter pattern for particles. Now, this was just a conjecture for a long time, but physicists took it very, very seriously. And you have to note that what's going on here is something quite extraordinary. I believe what is going on here is particles are displaying characteristics of waves in certain conditions which have not been mentioned in this presentation by Karen Barad. However, if there is some instrument that is now brought to bear on this situation, they no longer behave as waves and return to behaving as they were as particles. When thinking about the most subtle parts of our human experiences, the very existence of an idea or a concept is the instruments itself that led to the idea. Beauty is the eye of the beholder. But obviously, the finger is not the moon. Because it's saying that depending upon how I measure it, I'm not just disturbing something and making it behave differently. What I'm actually doing is changing its ontology. That's quite extraordinary. So we're saying something like the nature of nature depends on how you measure it. And Bohr said something that I think is one of the most unique things said in the history of physics, which is he said, if we want to understand this, we have to know what we mean by concepts. What are concepts? And he said something rather amazing, that concepts are specific material arrangements, specific material arrangements. And he argued on the basis of this, and I don't have time to reproduce that here, that that will ultimately mean that there is no separability between the object and the apparatus. In the current Langua Franca, we would say that they're entangled with one another, that there's an interaction of object and apparatus, which he called a phenomenon. And he said the world is made up of phenomena, not independently existing objects. It's even hard to say this because our imaginations are so constrained when it comes to talking about time. But at a given time, as it were, or at a given place, there's multiple times that it's going through the slits at the same time. An entanglement of times. What Karen is referring to is the idea that at the same time there can be multiple phenomena at play. For example, the idea that beauty and suffering can coexist within the same individual and hence the same quantum field if we can assume that an individual also consists of atoms and the like. I'm told that computing and electricity are actions that happen through electrons moving around. 
if for some reason the electrons stop moving, I have to stop this recording. Life at home during the lockdown without electrons buzzing around would be not a good life at all. To take that one step further, if I have understood Karen's talk correctly, the electrons can be in more than one place at the same time and can somehow respond to being observed. It's as if for some strange reason they want us to believe they are electrons and not waves. Because Heisenberg says there's something there that we disturb and Bohr saying there isn't a there there before there's a measurement. And so how can I make a measurement to decide the difference between them when the difference between them is what happens before a measurement? But actually, there's a gorgeous way to do this. What physicists did was they designed a witch slit detector, right? That's what you want. But instead of a flashlight here, it's something a bit more complicated that I can't go into right now, but just it's like a flashlight, okay? And it's detecting which slit the, in this case, atoms, rubidium atoms, are being used. And it's detecting which slit the rubidium atom is actually going through. So just to make things uh, simple without going into details, they've designed this witch slit detector in just such a way that there is no disturbance of the forward momentum of the rubidium atom. So Heisenberg is hardwired out of this experiment. If this experiment works, it's not because of the disturbance, because that's how it's designed. So we do this experiment, and the first thing is we don't have a witch slit detector, and lo and behold, we get a diffraction pattern of the atoms on the screen. That's what we expected, that's what we've seen lots of times. Now we put in the witch slit detector. What do we say? Is Einstein right or poor? Well, we don't get a diffraction pattern anymore when we do the witch slit dete detection experiment, and that vindicates Bohr. But then, that would be enough. That would have been enough of a contribution. But then the scientists, the physicists said, wow, if there's no disturbance here, then I can take away, after the fact, I can erase the information of which slit it had gone through. Can I get the diffraction pattern back? Right? And so that's what they tried. That's called the quantum eraser experiment. And they went ahead and did this. They erased the... So in other words, the atom's on its way through. It goes through which slit detector. It makes a mark about which slit it goes through. It goes on and hits the screen. Boom, it's on the screen. Now you decide afterwards whether to erase the information about which slit it has gone through. Okay? And when you do that, you get a diffraction pattern. Now let's pay attention to that. We are in deep waters, admittedly. However, the payoff will be great. I promise you. The reason we are thinking about this is to understand how to approach the global COVID-19 lockdown from both an individual and organizational perspective and the difficulty of change and global cooperation and democracy and so on. What Karen Barad has just shared with us is this finding from quantum field theory that is 
Things are so entangled that somehow particles know what we know about them. And simply by changing what we know about them, they can change where they have been. Does this mean we can take back the 2,000 bombs that have been dropped on indigenous people? Does this mean we can put COVID-19 back in the box? What would we have to forget? After the fact, I will have decided. Okay? So there's something very strange going on here with temporality. But there, there's an important sense in which what the experiment is telling us is the past is always open. In fact, the past is yet to come. It's not left behind. And that's not merely subjectively, but ontologically. Okay? But what's really important in this is that what the physicists had talked about is the fact that the diffraction of pattern would be recovered, and it's not recovered. It's a new diffraction pattern. And so what's so important about this is it turns out that when you make erasures, you leave traces in the world. Okay? And so I have claimed very much both tongue-in-cheek and meaning it at the same time, because that would only be appropriate to annoy my fellow Derridians, that this is empirical evidence for a Derridian ontology. I mean, if something is present to me, I know what's present, but the number of things that are absent is, well, it's numberless. Mm. No, you're right, it's not a surprise. And I don't think Derrida would disagree uh, with that comment or with the idea that you know, the presence is, um, is important, it's part of us, part of our experience and part of who we are. But I think what he always wanted to stress, to draw attention to, was that in some sense it's an illusion to think that meaning, that truth and intelligibility are the kind of thing that can be immediately present to us. One cannot say, here are our monsters, without immediately turning the monsters into pets. What does it mean to leave a trace? It is one thing to abstract about electrons. We all know that emotions leave traces too, and so do disasters such as COVID-19. But what kind of traces are they? Are we talking about things that archaeologists might dig up a hundred thousand years from now? Are we talking about imprints into our DNA? Are we talking about imprints onto the very ecosystem of planet Earth? on my computer's hard drive, on the social media, on the internet, even in the toilet. The idea of a trace is that you are no longer present, but there's something like a ghost there that speaks of your presence. The thing about a trace is, if you try to follow it, it'll change everything about your day-to-day -day experience. Try it during the lockdown. Let me know how you get on.
Florida took this idea and built upon it. He said that not only were signs dependent on each other for their meaning, but that other signs were always present within the meaning of a single sign by what he called their trace. The trace has, properly speaking, no place, for effacement belongs to the very structure of the trace. Derrida's fundamental point with all of these terms is that language is hugely subjective. Meaning differs from reader to reader, time to time, and so there cannot possibly be a shared truth that we can all access through one theory, philosophy, or institution. Right and left, male and female, inside and outside, high and low, speech and writing. One of the frustrating things about the COVID-19 pandemic is having to line up everywhere. And when you're forced to choose between one of two options and you have to make the choice quickly, it plays on your mind a little bit. If you're like me, you might regret what you got and you might feel like, oh my God, maybe I should have got the other thing. But what if the decision is not about a product, but rather an idea or a concept? Combining quantum field theory and postmodern thinking, an idea isn't just a thing in my head, but rather a whole entourage of traces are involved in it. The existence of such kinds of traces which blur reality itself poses real challenges to anyone who wants certainty during this COVID-19 lockdown. What we find in postmodern thinkers is a rejection of the whole modernist project in philosophy, the whole Enlightenment agenda. If you think about the Enlightenment uh, philosophers, the early modern philosophers, they were seeking certain knowledge. They were seeking secure foundations for knowledge. They were trying to discover what is called a final metaphysics, a, uh, an ultimate understanding of reality. Postmodernism, uh, in this sense, also rejects some of the ideals of uh, modernism, such as the idea that there are universal norms of reason and morality uh, that apply to everyone and that any thinking person uh, can can discover through rational reflection. Postmodernism can also be seen as an extension of modernism, an extension of modernism that is taking modernism even further along uh, the road that it's already set on. What postmodernism does is it pushes that enlightenment commitment to human autonomy to its ultimate endpoint. Remember, I talked about in the modernist in the modern period, we see two turns: uh, the subjective turn, the turn towards the subject as the, the center and the foundation for epistemology, and also the autonomous, the autonomous turn, uh, the turn towards seeing the mind of man, human reason and experience as the ultimate standard. The critique of Derrida's philosophy tends to be that he pushes people to nihilism 
in the sense that people can question the meaning of even the most basic uh, human relationships, uh, such as the relationship between parents and children. But actually, um, he wrote extensively on parent-child relationships and teacher-student relationships. So, in effect, actually, a lot of the criticism is a result of a misunderstanding that is created by a quickness to uh, come to conclusions. And we saw this with Bruno Latour. Um, these French guys are just really hard to pin down um, and transport easily as to what they mean. But the key message here is not that we're going to be totally like rebellious and do what we want um, from Derridian, you know, thinkers. It's more like let's actually unpack what we mean by things. So he talks about this, for example, in relation to the law and legal judgment. And he asks the question, what is it in fact to make a legal decision? And the paradox or the aporia that he points to is that on the one hand, a decision is supposed to be informed by the facts, informed by the relevant principles on which a decision or determination is to be made. And that, to a large degree, can be a, a rule-governed process, the kind of thing, he says, that in principle could be undertaken by a machine. But then he says, but if it were taken by a machine, or if it were completely rule-governed, would it really be a decision? But if invention is bringing about something new, something other, surely to really be an invention, it would have to be something completely other. So he says an invention, properly speaking, would be something that we couldn't recognize. He wrote an essay after 9-11, for example. One of the last books that he published was a collection of essays called Rogues, which was about the idea of rogue states, but also about terrorism, about international relations, about the fate of democracy. He offers what he calls a concept of a democracy to come, the possibility of future new and different forms of democracy, and brings that to bear on uh, what he and uh, in common with many others see as the democratic deficits of national and international political order in the present. In democracy, he says, I think rather extremely, the use of power is always an abuse of power. As he would put it, unconditioned power still remains a part of our systems of democratic government. So it's not that he thinks that power is avoidable or that indeed government shouldn't be about the exercise of power, but what I think he wants to insist on is that power should always be accountable and that, uh, as you said, power is something that we should always be able to give reasons for its exercise and that might be one of the ways in which we could move toward a, a different kind of democracy, a democracy to come. Well, what is the meaning of a decision? Most of us are probably at home right now as a result of no decision of our own. If the coronavirus is really novel, then it seems to have a better grip on innovation than most present-day scientists. What is the meaning of freedom? 
or absolute sovereignty, absolute power, and how does all of this play out in a democracy? Not to mention, what is the role of individuals, organizations, and communities? Today we took a deep dive into quantum field theory and postmodern management philosophy. The link between the two appears to be in the entanglement of time itself. Karen Barad demonstrated through a series of experiments how the very act of measuring a thing changes not just the behavior of that thing but the fundamental beingness of that thing. If we are quick to judge this community or that community, then that act of judgment changes the very fabric of who we are as a society. Not just our behavior, but who we are. By letting go, we can change the past. I'm your host, Varun Bharadwaj, and I will see you tomorrow. This podcast was brought to you by Caring for Fano.